Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Reese Roper is the singer of the ska punk band Five Iron Frenzy. Now, this will mean different things to different listeners. But if you were raised in my particular subculture, you might be super excited to hear more from Reese. Alternatively, you might think even less of him than the average guest on the show because of, well, ska. But Reese has always been a very thoughtful person and songwriter. And also clearly from my vantage point, a trustworthy and a genuine guy. And that's why I wanted to interview him. Now, Reese is a little ADD, I guess you would say, 
And so the narrative structure of this episode is not as tight as, for instance, the one about healing prayer with Tom Ward. Very tight structure. But as a result, we get into some stories and insights that are really wonderful and surprising and that I couldn't really have anticipated. Now, I'd like to offer a short anecdote uh, to prove that Reese is a guy worth listening. About five years ago, I saw Five Iron open up for MXPX in Seattle. Now, I love MXPX. I grew up on their music. They have a very special place in my heart. But seeing the two bands back to back was pretty jarring. Um, I'm trying to put this as delicately as I can. After hearing 45 minutes of Reese's songwriting with really thoughtful lyrics, interesting chord changes, uh, deep content, uh, we went to MXPX. And if you know their music, it was like Responsibility, What's That? And Chick Magnet. And it was, frankly, kind of embarrassing. Uh, the gulf in the sort of maturity of the writing. And that ha- that led to me kind of rethinking Five Iron's place in my life. Um, and I get into a little bit of that at the beginning of the talk here with Reese. So just go along with the ride. I'm not trying to be mean to MXPX. They have their place. But Five Iron, I think, uh, it's hard to know if you weren't in this scene, but they're really kind of underappreciated for just how brilliant of a band and, and how great of a songwriter Reese was. So, here's my chat with Reese. Well, Reese, man, at the risk of kind of gushing here at the beginning, I just I do want to say that it is really great to be interviewing someone who I have respected for about as long as I've respected anybody. Really That's ridiculous. Well, I just, you know, I discovered your music when I was like 13. And yeah. so you've got to jump on a lot of other people. But really like when I, I was I was texting with a friend today about this, Mike, my, my own conscientiousness as both a person of faith and even some of my sort of political and like social understandings like really were shaped in part by your own work, you know, from junior high through college. And I'm really grateful for that. And so I'm, I'm very happy to be talking with you today. Thank you. So in terms of changing your mind, the time frame we're talking about here is sort of your early days playing with Five Iron, touring, making records, to now, your mm-hmm. current self. And so what do we need to know about your upbringing, your life story, whatever, to understand why you held that original view about what it meant to be Christ-like. My mom, I guess, grew up in church. She grew up in a Lutheran church. And I started going to church when I was a kid because she taught Sunday school. So she taught Sunday school for us, for my sister and I, because she felt like it would be a good influence, even though she didn't really know she believed And when I was in seventh grade, she kind of had this revival where she met this guy and he was going to a church. And this church was so cool. (laughs) I got to tell you, the guys who ran it came out of Pentecostal churches. So they they believed in like speaking in tongues and stuff, but they weren't adamant about it. It was more just non-denominational. And it was like up-tempo worship 
they created this church because both of them had been ostracized for being divorced. And so they started this church called Rocky Mountain Christian Singles. And it met in this nightclub where the Chippendales were. (laughs) So there was just posters of dudes in thongs. And then you're just like, cool, I'm at church. I don't know. My mom started going to that and I went to the youth group. We had this really patient youth pastor whose name was actually Billy Graham. I'd be like, well, how come you can't see angels? And he'd be like, you know, maybe their molecules vibrate at a different frequency and, you know, or maybe you can't see them because they're spirit. You know, you can't see people's souls. You know, he would just kind of talk me through these things. And finally, one day I was just like, this is what I believe. In terms of, you know, that church environment, you know, that kind of what we would now call a missional environment, you know, renting out a bar, renting out some other kind of club venue. Yeah. That has a Christ-like element to it, right? Because that's got a lot of um, the Gospels. Christ is hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and all that. Did you put that together back then at that young age? Yeah. This is the thing about kids is, you know, and I was only 12 or 13, but like you can tell when people are lying to you. You kind of pick up on on that. For me, then I was like, this is the thing. This is what I didn't like about church. You know, it was starchy. And why do you have to dress up and go in this place to find God? You know, here's these people who no one wants in their church for something stupid, you know, because they got divorced. They just wanted to know God and worship him. Rocky Mountain Christian Singles is such a fantastic name for a church, by the it way. Really was. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> like, props to those guys yeah. solely on that name. Totally. So, how would you say you thought of Christ-likeness about 20, 25 years ago? I don't know how the inner dialogue goes with everyone, but, like, for me, I, I feel that a lot of it is just trying to convince myself that I'm I'm doing better than I was. Like I'm I'm more enlightened than I was 20 years ago or even last year. But then, you know, I'll read something I wrote, I'll, you know, read songs that I wrote, you know, and I'll be like, I remember writing that and I kind of feel the same way still. Yeah. So, you know, like I, I grow in areas, but I think like with that inner dialogue, I'm, I'm kind of lying to myself. I don't really, I've not come that far. It's just, I think, on certain topics. And and I guess as a Christian or as a person, I think that my journey has been more to become softer, which I think most people do with age. You know, like I think I was very wound up and very political and, and punk rock as a kid. And I still hold those ideals, but I feel that like it's way more powerful to be merciful and way more powerful to, to, you know, to listen to people than to, to just talk all the time. I don't know. I think that a lot of people go through that. Speaking about things you wrote, I was going back through uh, some of your catalog earlier today. And, and it reminded me that from the very beginning, you know, from the first Vibran record, you were quite what I would call biblically literate. I would say that you had a really strong emphasis on following Christ's example, following that of the apostles. You mentioned Peter and Paul and John, you know, like in in lyrics and stuff. And Mm -hmm. so you definitely had a sense of that from scripture. It's not like you were just handed some weird 
completely divorced from the text idea of following Christ. Like you, you know, you, you didn't start with a D minus, you know, it, it seemed to me. I, I can attribute that only to, uh, you know, to that, that upbringing, you know, I, in eighth grade, when I started going to this, going to this church, I was also in Catholic school. And I think that just kind of helped me process what I was doing. Somebody had bought me a one-year Bible. I read through the whole Bible in eighth grade. And I, you know, like I, I enjoyed it. I enjoy, I not, not as much as I do. You know, like now I don't, I don't think I enjoy it very much. But I think back then I really enjoyed like digging into scripture and learning and Bible studies and hermeneutics. <laughs> you know, like I had like a an exhaustive concordance and and you know like all, all the crazy Bible study things. And I just I enjoyed that. Speaking of that, what scripture passages or verses or biblical narratives do you think shaped that early understanding of what it means to be Christ-like? I feel like I could just circle Romans 8 for the entirety of my life. I, I love how Paul starts out and he's just talking about how we're we're all broken and that we're all sinners, but that because God loved us so much, there's, you know, there's no height or depth or, or, or anything that can separate us from the love of God. And that's why we're saved, because he loves us. It always just kind of haunts me. I, I feel like what we look at as the Bible, what we do it has to be filtered through the character of Christ. You can see, you can see in Five Iron Lyrics, like where Upbeats and beatdowns is way more finger pointy, and then it becomes less and less. It becomes more just like I don't. I don't feel like that's how Christ is. I think he pointed fingers at religious people, and when people were humble, he loved them. I think he loved them anyway. But um, so, would you maybe describe? You know, we're talking. We're we're calling this changing your mind, but it's not so much that you really changed your mind. It's not that you're fundamental understanding of Christ-likeness has undergone a radical shift. It's more like you've maybe further nuanced the pretty healthy thing you were given from a young age. Would you say that's accurate? Maybe. For me, I, one of the biggest things that I've changed my mind on is just like the, the church's response to homosexuality. Yeah, I have a lot of anger about just who I was and, and how um, – that I feel like I was homophobic. I think that most kids growing up, you're either a little bit homophobic or you, or you're gay, you know, or or you're super homophobic. And I and I feel like up until modern times, up until like this decade, you know, like the church really hasn't had this battle. Um, but now it's like tearing us apart. I, f I feel like the world has just turned their back on the church because they don't see it as being like a, you know, they, they see us preaching love and, and Christ and then treating people not that way. And I think it has just burned a lot of people's perception of the church and, and of Jesus. And I accepted that. And then I had friends who are gay and family members who are gay. And I have to look at that through the lens of Jesus Christ. And for that to happen, I had to change. You know, I had to just be like, well, okay, homophobia is a sin. And let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in Five Iron, we had the song Fahrenheit, where I talked about how 
you know, Queen was my favorite band. And by the way, they're still my favorite band. <laughs> but I, I completely just like found out Freddie Mercury was gay and I was like, I hate that band. And then he died. Like I, it haunts me. I, I love Freddie Mercury and I love Queen. I hate that I was like that. Um, and so, you know, we wrote Fahrenheit in the bridge, you know, which is like the part of the song where you kind of tie together the message or, you know, like what you're trying to say. I say, you know, like, love the sinner, hate the sin, which I hate that about myself. You know, I hate that I said that. Well, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I understand what you're saying. Uh, <laughs> I understand why you hate that you said that. But I will just say that that song to me was a part of probably my early journey of, of moving towards gay affirmation because it was a whole lot more loving and self-critical and, and sort of self-aware than any of the stuff that I was reading or listening or hearing from people on that issue. It didn't go all the way to where you are now in terms of its position, but like, you wrote, you didn't write it now. You wrote it then. And so I don't know. I wouldn't beat yourself up about that. You can stop with the self-loathing, Reese. <laughs> and it, as as regards that issue. So, unfortunately, we're not going to have a conversation today about how you change your mind about homosexuality because there's other episodes I have in the hopper on that topic. And anyway, I want to get to this thing about Christ likeness with your your work now working with a nursing home, but we'll, what we'll use that as, as it's a measuring stick. So that's something on which you did a 180 and Christ likeness mm-hmm. is, is not like that. It's more, it's more nuanced and it's more of a kind of a honing of the original position. And that that's helpful just to get our minds around what we're talking about here. Right. So during those touring years, the early years, how did you think that you as the singer of five iron, should have gone about, or how were you thinking you ought to go about being Christ-like? Man, I think during the early years, a lot of it was just how we treated other bands. So four of us were in a in like this industrial thrash metal band, and we had played some clubs and some like churches and stuff. The very early nineties glam metal was a thing and and part of that scene was just like being as cocky as possible you'd be like opening for some like third tier glam metal band in a church in like casper wyoming and if those guys were cool you were surprised but normally they were just like cocky like you know they go get their hair done and yet another reason to be grateful uh, to Nirvana for releasing Nevermind. Oh my gosh. To just wipe that shit off the map. Exactly. But yeah, like seeing that we just kind of were like, I don't want to be that. I don't, I don't like that. Like that's not Christ-like. And then, you know, we started Five Iron and for some reason we ended up getting like the ear of this, promoter that brought in all the punk and all the underground punk shows and all the underground ska shows. And we were his favorite band, I think because he didn't have to pay us, (laughs) but we had a good draw and then he just would have us open these shows. So we, we do, you know, at the time, like two Christian shows a week and then play in the bars in the weekends. And it was just like night and day, how different the, bands were 
you know, the the secular bands were versus the Christian bands. You know, we play with like Les and Jake. They had a five dollar T shirt. None of their shirts were more than ten bucks. And, and you know, like, and then we'd go play with a Christian band, and they they'd have twenty dollar T shirts and a van, and not talk to anybody, not talk to the fans, not talk to the other bands. It was pretty pretty quick that we were just like this. This is ironic that the secular bands that we're playing with almost across the board were cooler than the Christian bands. I will say the, f- the first time that Sherwood ever charged $20 for a shirt is we were on tour with Reliant K and uh, it's common to make the support bands charge the same as the headliners so that you're not yeah. competing on price when there's only a few bands. But man, I was so pumped because Christian Reliant K fans would just have money from their parents and those $20 t-shirts like paid for my honeymoon and my wife's wedding ring. <laughs> and uh so I was I was okay with that. I now I I'm not going to I'm not going to put myself I'm not going to let you put me into a minor threat fugazi fueled guilt trip for for taking those soccer moms money. Reese. Yeah. I'm sorry. I had to eat, dude. I didn't I lived with my parents. <laughs> So no, I'm kidding. I don't think that is the bad thing. I I'm what, I, obviously I know. Yeah. What, so what Reliant K did to you though? That's bad, and we taught them better than that. Oh, to to do price um, matching? Yeah, like I I that, I, that I, thing. I respectfully disagree, man. I'm really glad that they did that because nobody minded. Oh, no one minded paying it, and we made we probably increased our actual net like seventy five percent by adding five bucks to a t shirt. Oh, man. It was totally it sh- worth it. It should have been your choice, though. Well, yeah. They were actually great to us. They got us a bottle of whiskey, like, every night, and uh, <laughs> they they let us mooch, like, off their all their green room stuff all the time. Yeah. Uh, they had, like, nicknames for me because of that, but we won't get into it. But, so, it's interesting. <laughs> so, if we're talking about 20-ish years ago, you're, you immediately have a distinction in your mind between, huh, the way that a lot of these secular bands are acting seems more Christ-like than the way that a lot of these Christian bands are acting. Right. And this is even before you guys are on tour yourself. This is when you're a local band opening up for, right. for tours that are coming through. That's really interesting. Speaking of the Christian music scene, I mean, ostensibly, the Christian music industry would be a place where Christ-likeness would be encouraged or rewarded or something. Mm-hmm. Why do you think you didn't experience that? Honestly, I think the Christian music scene was created to make money. I don't know if I've ever said this in an interview before, but I know this dude. His dad was one of the founders of Sparrow Records. And he flat out said that like in the in the 70s, Cat Stevens, Bob Dylan, all these people were claiming to be Christians and they were just making records and nobody cared. They were just like, this is cool. Jesus is is cool. Have you heard this new Bob Dylan record? You know, like here's Cat Stevens. He's singing lyrics from Martin Luther. It was cool. The Christian Booksellers Association, which is like this, this organization out of Nashville, they decided they could, they could make money by creating Christian bookstores in their own genre to sell records. And they did. I just feel like the the Christian scene has always been kind of had that dirty hand in it where it's just about making money and not about serving God or not about, you know, about being Christ-like. 
with a few exceptions, like Rich Mullins or Keith Green. You know, like I feel like those are two people that saw that it was bad and they were just like, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'll give my records away for free. Rich Mullins is like, you know, I'm going to start this like kind of Protestant monastic order called the Kid Brothers of St. Frank. And we're just going to we're going to live like monks. You know, that that kind of stuff, I think, pulls away from it. One thing that stands out to me from the very beginning with your lyrics, as far as I can tell, you were never tempted to just live within the Christian subculture bubble. From record one, you're writing songs about the slaughter of Native Americans, anti-militaristic songs, police brutality. You know, the underdog has always been this big lyrical motif for you in a way that really most Christian bands, I mean, maybe some punk bands were doing, but you guys really stood out from the very beginning in that way. Why do you think you had the confidence to just go straight into it like that? We didn't care about the Christian bubble, the Christian music industry to a point, you know, like I I don't want to hurt people. You know, I I don't want to damage relationships that I have with people. It's more so now. I feel like I'm softer. But back then you don't want to hurt people. You don't want to hurt record executives who are mad at you because you don't want to pay a 40% uh, a merchandise fee. Yeah, for a big festival or something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so like one time we played in Cincinnati, where I'm at right now. We played at this amusement park and they were going to charge a 40% merch fee. And we said, absolutely not. You know, like this is not what we're about. This is not what the church is about for your Christian festival. We're not doing it. We'd rather just not sell merchandise. <laughs> and so we told people, we just said, hey, from stage, we're not selling merchandise. And here's why. You can you can send a self-addressed envelope to this address and we'll send it to you. You know, we'll, <laughs> I, I don't think we had a website then. Yeah. We'll send you a catalog. The dude ran across the stage <laughs> grabbed the mic from me, pulled it away, and he was like, do you know who I f***ing am? <laughs> you can't say that here on the stage. And, it, like, Mike was picking up everything. Yeah, and wow. I was like, crazy. Like, a year later, I ended up having just, like, a really good conversation with this this dude. He was sorry that he had done that, and he was just like, I was really struggling with my faith, and, and I think, you know, I didn't understand what you guys are doing, but I really appreciate it. <laughs> You know, we left as friends. That was a crazy thing. How did you know that your your understanding of Christ-likeness was getting nuanced, was, was changing a bit? You know, like we had been in all these experiences that, you know, we had always dreamt of, you know, where we got to go to different countries or we got to play in all these places, play huge festivals, play small clubs. We started a church. We had just done all these things, and I think— not that the goodness or or like the the excitement of serving Christ had worn off, but I think the it kind of wears the edges off of like what you get excited about. I think that that had worn off. Well, there is a kind of um, a risk in following Christ, right? I mean, like if you read the Sermon on the Mount, yeah, it is everything that he recommends that you do is incredibly fraught with risk. Yeah, don't worry what you'll wear, what you'll eat. Basically, don't save money, you know, like this is the kind of stuff, don't, you know, don't repay evil with evil, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, you know, I, I've been reading about 
people who resisted the Nazis. I mean, it's just like this stuff is super risky. And so maybe yeah. you you had like some risk school that you did for nine years in your eight person <laughs> ska band. And then it wore off. Hmm. So most of you know I do this thing called Patreon. It's a way for listeners to support my podcasting work financially, but it's also an excuse for me to have a bunch of even more wide-ranging conversations than I tend to have for this show. And I do two of these bonus episodes each month for patrons only. Now the second of these for March 2019 is a conversation with my friend Matt Brake, or his scholarly name Matthew William Brake, about theology and pop culture, movies, TV shows, comic books. Matt has been publishing in this world for years and is currently overseeing two book series published by serious theological houses. Here are some clips from my talk with Matt. Batman is the one who says, okay, I'm going to violate people's privacy to do this surveillance system in order to do what's necessary. Interesting. Um, Harvey Dent talks about it at the beginning of... um, of the movie when he says, you know, the Romans had a, had a rule where if, uh, if the enemies of Rome were at the gate, they would suspend parliamentary or senatorial power and imbue one person with the powers they needed to, to win. And then you end up with this problem. It's like, okay, well the last person to do that didn't give the power back. And so Caesar, right. Chosenness and election are scandalous ideas and yet they appear there. Um, and you have this thing, you see some people seeing their chosenness as a sign that their lives matter more than others. Uh, other times you see that chosenness is something you, you're chosen in order to serve and prevent the spread of evil by being a caretaker of the island. There are oppressed, largely people of color all around the world and even in our own world. And you have to wonder about the half measures of liberalism the sort of good enough, better than the alternatives of liberalism and how unsatisfying that is going to be to people, um, particularly, you know, from the lens of a liberation theology that kind of looks at that and goes, you know, God is on the side of the oppressed, man. Like, right. yeah. your status quo is not in his interest. <laughs> 
in a way, Wakanda can do that. And in oh, a way, it's, yeah. it's, sep- it's separate for so long that it can now emerge on the world scene as an equal uh, in a way that no African or black nationalist power has been able to do. We did this series at our church for a while. It actually was one of the reasons our church collapsed, but um, on how in the Hunger Games, America is the empire, is the capital. Interesting. And how, and how we live off the resources of other people in the world and act oppressively and like are sort of blind to our own privilege. Um, and you're saying that that ended a church? That surprises me so much, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> did people didn't want to hear that? No, no, you got to take care of your own kids, man, because they're the least of these. Even though when Jesus says the least of these, he means not your own family. In fact, he specifically says, if you're just nice to your own family, you're no better than the average Joe. Yeah. In a disenchanted world, it might get us to actually think about a re-enchantment of the world. Interesting. Um, Which is kind of my hope for some of this stuff, especially when you get a writer like Grant Morrison who incorporates his own... Um, sort of esoteric, Gnostic, neo-pagan spirituality into his comics, and it makes for interesting storytelling, Um, even though a lot of it makes me uncomfortable because I was raised in a world where you didn't read Harry Potter because Satan. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? But at the very least, I want to re-enchant the world in a materialistic age that doesn't see religion as a live option, as something to be seriously considered as having truth value. And I'm okay. And I'm okay doing that as a person within a tradition, inviting other people within their own traditions to contribute. Because at the very least, we learn about each other in that process, which is necessary for our interactions in the public sphere. Now, if any of that sounded interesting to you and you are not already a patron, you can become one for five bucks a month at patreon.com slash Dan Koch, or you have permission podcast, sorry, you have permission pod.com and click Become a Patron. When you sign up, you'll get an email, which will give you an RSS feed that you can put directly into your podcast app. It's just a copy-paste thing. And then these bonus episodes will show up just like normal episodes in your app. Patrons also get exclusive access to the You Have Permission Facebook discussion group. And I often ask the people in that group for interview questions for upcoming guests. Speaking of which, Matt Brake from the Comics and Pop Culture and Theology episode We'll be doing an Ask Me Anything style post in that Facebook group next week for any and all theology and pop culture questions that you can throw at him. He can also do Kierkegaard questions because that's what he studied in seminary. Now, if you're married to someone who's already a patron, feel free to request to join that discussion group on Facebook and I'll add you on there. And if money really is an issue for you in this stage of life, but you want in on these discussions, email me. You have permission podcast at gmail.com and we can figure something out. Now, back to my conversation with Reese. Two of the guys in our band are, they're agnostic, Scott and Andy, just because they they both question their faith enough that they just don't want to say that they're believers anymore. Mm-hmm. 
which is cool. I, I appreciate their honesty in that. I like to joke with them and tell them they worship Satan, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny because they don't even believe in Satan. <laughs> right. I have a bit that I uh, I do stand up with my friends on my birthday, and I had, I had uh-huh. this bit that didn't go over very well, but I liked it a lot, which is... Um, to, worshiping Satan is like rooting against the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> like to say that people worship Satan is like nobody would really do that. Like if you believe in Satan, then like you know he loses. That's like part of the belief. So let's talk about what you're doing now. So I, I've okay. heard you on in a couple interviews talk about this, but basically you you became a nurse and you went mm-hmm. to nursing school, became a nurse, and then you sort of were offered this job to take over this nursing home and there really wasn't anybody around to run it well. And there's like a bunch of residents and they're old and you know, like you were like, I, I got to take this job. Can, can you fill in a little more of the details there? And is that right? Yeah, it kind of is. Um, most people who go into like a medical field, they, they have like a bit of like an adrenaline junkie that they've got to get out. And I, I worked in the surgical trauma burn ICU at UVA to get that out of my system for like four years. And I I ended up having PTSD from it. And so my wife was like, well, you know, maybe get a job closer to home and, and not that. I had worked in a nursing home before in a couple of different nursing homes in Denver. And so I applied to the closest place to my house. Because <laughs> nice. they had an assistant director of nursing job, and I and I was like, well, this this will be interesting. I'll see if I can get it, and and I did. Little did I know that I like they probably would have given it to anybody. <laughs> it was like a <laughs> catastrophe in this in this building. So I I was like the assistant director of nursing for six six months, and then the director of nursing just quit, like just walked out of the building. And, uh, so uh, then I became the interim director of nursing and then the director of nursing. And I did it for four and a half years. I actually, so I, my last day was a week ago, Friday, like the, I guess the average length of employment for a director of nursing in, in long-term care, which is like a, a nursing home is six months. So I feel like I beat the odds, but more so just for me, I, I think that I, I just feel like it's it's the same thing as with Fiverr and I just approach it differently. I, I feel like my job is to just be honest and, and listen to God and, and try and take care of his people. And I think that if you're doing that as a boss, it works. It's sometimes pretty hard, you know, like it's emotionally draining. But I think that if you care about the people that you you have working for you, or especially, you know, like if you're in a nursing home, you're taking care of sick elderly people, it's pretty easy to just be like, okay, I, I know exactly what Jesus would do right here. You know, I'm gonna have to eat a little bit of shit. I'm gonna have to suffer Or literally a bit. clean some up. Exactly. Talk a bit about more, uh, more about that. So, in a sense, a nursing home is a place where the Christ-like thing is more obvious than a tour van or a rock club. Yeah. How have you yeah. experienced that change? I enjoy the blessing of it. You know, like, so I can tell you 
in Firearm, one of my favorite parts ever was we brought a PA, this was like 1995, to Cornerstone. And we knew, because we had been there the year before, just as fans, that there was a plug that stuck out of the ground next to the skate ramp. And bands sometimes would go over there until they got kicked off. They'd show up with a PA and play <laughs> until they got kicked out. And we were like, this is what we got to do. This is going to be so cool and punk rock. So we made flyers and we put them out and then we just did it. We played like a half hour. We only had like maybe four songs. And then Goatee Hook played. And the dudes from Crash Dog were sent over to tell us to stop it and to cut the power. And we're like, come on, man, we're just trying to play a show. And they said, okay, we're supposed to tell you to turn it off, but here's the deal. Tell these guys they got two more songs and then we're going to serve communion. And it was like the guys in Five Iron and the guys in Goatee Hook walking around handing out pieces of white bread. And then I think we had a cup that we were sharing with water because we didn't have grape juice or wine. It was like the most sacrificial thing I had ever done to that point. I loved it. And I feel like that, (laughs) I feel like that when I actually get to be a nurse. Wow. I loved it. I was just going to say, why don't you become like an Episcopal priest? (laughs) I think that would suit you, but uh, maybe the nursing, you, you get a lot of that same stuff. Yeah. I do. I, I, so I, you know, I was a pastor at, at Scum of the Earth, the church that we started. And I feel like when I am being a nurse, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I'm doing very sacrificial things. And I really feel like I'm, I'm doing that same thing. Like I'm more of a pastor in that than I was when I was a pastor. Yeah. I mean, that's its own. That's its own conversation for another day, which is how much ministry are you able to do when you're in full-time ministry? But I'm curious, if you put yourself from 20 years ago into your current job, let's for the moment ignore the fact that you need to go to med school, but just temperamentally, you know, patience-wise, in terms of how you see people, sick people, old people, would you have been able to handle it or do you experience it fundamentally differently now that you've grown up more? Yeah, I don't think I could. I don't, I don't think I had the patience for the managing people, the, the director of nursing part. I didn't have the patience for that. When you're managing nursing and, you know, nurses and CNAs, you're trying to coax people or get them excited about like, you're doing this very sacrificial thing that you're not ever going to get paid enough for, you know, why you need to see that, you know, like you're a good person and and this is what you're going to do. I don't think I had that 20 years ago. You know, I, I don't, I don't think I had had that voice for myself. And I think that like maybe in, in the past 20 years, I've gained that. Do you think that this is what happens with a lot of pastors? Like, because I'm thinking about your lyrics. I'm thinking about the kind Mm -hmm. of statements you made publicly through writing those songs. And I think, well, that part of him hasn't really changed that much. It's not like you've totally changed your mind on those issues. And maybe pastors are like that too. They go to seminary when they're young. They, They get a job out of seminary. 
but then something mm-hmm. happens over 20 years of doing ministry and they, they do soften. And it's not that they would like totally disagree with their younger selves. It's just that maybe they worked on the knowledge bit, the doctrine bit, and then they needed to work on the personal character bit, the the suffering, the, the willingness to suffer, yeah. you know, it, is that ringing true to you? Yes, absolutely. You don't see a lot of pastors that go that, like go the distance, you know, like they come into it in their twenties and then they, they make it all the way to their sixties. And if they do, they're not, you know, like they, they usually have to go through some sort of crises of why am I here? You know, like my, my pastor, she was in the theater, she was an actress, she loved it. And she had this whole other career and then somehow became a Christian. And, and then that became the the thing to her, you know, like she saw the light and the the life in it and wanted to share that with people. And so now it's like, it's like her second career or like, Mike, the guy that was the co-pastor with me at Scum of the Earth, he was a salesman until he was like 40. And then he, he had a vision that he was going to gonna start this great ministry and it was going to be with a band. And, you know, he, he and I started Scum of the Earth, which is 19 years old. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just, I, I feel that like... <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't want to get in like my, because I have a lot of negative thoughts about the church and just like going to church and and pastors, just how we created this position and why we keep sticking with with this idea that uh, you know like we're gonna we're gonna put this person in this position where they're gonna have almost all the spiritual gifts and never mess up and right. I feel like we've just kind of set ourselves up to fail in that as as the church. But I do feel that I have this, sometimes when I'm mad at God, <laughs> it is about the fact that he only had to do like 33 years of this. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, you know, like I'm 45 and I'm just like, I'm bored. I'm bored of, I'm bored of this, Lord. Like, did you have to do this? No. I guess what is convicting for me is is Fred Rogers, you know, Mr. Well, Rogers. My, one of my favorite uh, films of last year was that documentary. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so good. <laughs> to me, if maybe if Jesus made it into old age, that's kind of what it would yeah, look interesting. like. Minus the miracles. Yeah. He never stopped being this good person. He never stopped, you know, like trying to find the good in people and bring that out. And Would you have looked up to Fred Rogers the way you do now, 20 years ago, or would it have been somebody else as a model of Christ-likeness? I think it actually started about 20 years ago that I, <laughs> we were on tour and we had like a layover in the Pittsburgh airport and they had a huge display about Mr. Rogers. And it was like when he was still alive and I was like, Oh, well, we have nothing better to do. And I went and looked through it and I was like, holy crap, this guy was a Presbyterian pastor. This is crazy. And then I just started paying more attention to it. He was the real deal <laughs> that Presbyterians charged him with just kind of keeping his show and doing this, doing this ministry that he was already doing. I don't know. He was that guy. Well, it's not so different from being in a band. 
I guess. Insofar as, you know, you could be you could become a Presbyterian minister if you wanted to and still be in a band and that be your ministry. I mean, it's it's kind of what we're talking about, right? It's like how much ministry yeah. does the minister get to do while they're running a basically a small nonprofit and spending right. 20 hours of their week just just doing that, you know, or whatever it is. Yeah. I don't know. I I keep thinking like there's got to be a better way to do this than just like here's your church and and you go to church and and then this guy is this guy or lady is going to teach you all about Jesus and and then <laughs> like yeah. this is where you go to worship. I think God. about that a lot. Yet I still go to that. Well, yeah, the the thing for me is I just um I'm totally sold on the idea that hey, if we just had 10 families meet at someone's house like think about all the good you could do with that money that you would be giving. Yeah. But at the same time, like I love the liturgy and the aesthetics of the worship space. And like that stuff really genuinely helps me. And so yeah. for me, I don't, I don't have a solution to that. If I was someone who didn't care about the physical beauty and didn't need sort of all of that, I didn't need that pageantry. I would just do house church in a minute. But I kind of do need that yeah. stuff. I've totally been convicted lately of like we we go to this Presbyterian church. It's this super old, like two hundred year old Presbyterian church in our town. You know, like I'm on the church board and we're members. And what is convicting me is it's boring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there are times when it's just like ungodly boring, where you're just like what am I doing in this church? This is so boring. Should I go somewhere else? This is not what I like. This is not good. And I really just felt God just say, you need to be bored. Like you need to come and just sit for an hour, sit still and stop trying to do things and be busy and stop thinking about what the band is playing and how you could do it better. Or like, you know, what if they did this or did, I hate this song or, you know, just sit there and just kind of think about God and be a little bit bored. And that, I don't know, that's the conviction of of First Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia that I'm going that through. That feels actually very similar to me to what you're talking about with the Christ-likeness and the softening and the nuancing over time. It's not it's not that you would have said when you were younger, I ought to be stimulated all the time. It's more just like you have more patience now. You you've you've grown, you know. You're you're not yeah, there. Or I still you, yeah, you're patience. not there. But like you, you could at least you could hear that word from God and go, Yeah, that makes sense to me that I need to work on that. I'd like to talk about a couple five iron songs through kind of a theological lens. I want to start with the song Sucker Punch from your second record. It's it's okay. really beautiful. It, it's a song about outcasts, underdogs, you know, those on the margins. And lyrically in that song, you connect the outcast's value to Christ's atoning death. The line from the song is, while I was faithless, he still died for me. That's kind of the center of why, even though you're a nerdy junior higher, you know, you still have value. And I wonder, 20 years later, is that still how you think about the the outcast being valuable would you add anything to that would you nuance that in any way today uh, yeah i wish it was a better song oh i love that song <laughs> it's great oh man 
Yeah, no, I don't think so. I feel like I've grown as a lyricist, and I feel that our band has grown musically, but I could still write those words. Yeah. You tend to write from like what I would now call like a pretty standard Reformed theology perspective, kind of a critique, like your your critique of various dominant narratives, like we mentioned earlier, some of that's militarism and nationalism. Um, some of it is sexism, whatever. Like the critique is coming from this kind of reformed view. And, and by reformed, in this case, I mean like an emphasis on grace over works. Um, a lot of St. Paul language about like our lives being taken up in Christ, our identity being in Christ. And then of course, Christ's atoning sacrifice. Like, it's not like you're coming at these dominant views with like a liberal theology critique, right? That's that's kind of what I'm saying. Your lyrics didn't challenge my evangelical faith that I was raised with. They felt like a really authentic version of it to me. If 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 my evangelicalism okay. were to actually be taken seriously. So you can respond to any of that you want. My question is, I would imagine that a lot of the critiques still stand you're still against militarism and you know you've added some now you're you know as we've mentioned you're against homophobia and you weren't you didn't realize you were homophobic i'm wondering if the position from which you launch those critiques now is the same is it still that kind of reformed approach or has that changed uh, at all well i think it's softened a bit in eighth grade i went to catholic school and yeah. then at the same time I was going to this borderline pentecostal church you know, I was a pretty brainy kid, and so I just dug into theology. What I ended up getting into was Reformed theology. I've, I'm, I'm basically a Calvinist. Yeah. I want to say I'm a Calvinist, but it's so harsh. I will, I will not um, judge you for it. I'll tell you that much. Well, so here's the problem that I have with Calvinism: is it it, uh, it only looks at like God in one direction. You can only be a Calvinist looking at the past. You cannot look forward as a Calvinist. There's no action that you can do from it. You can just look backwards and be like, oh yeah, God did do that, and he is in control of all things. But if you look forward, it gets ugly. You know, then you 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 become this person that's like, well, God only saves some people, and I guess maybe it's me. I hope it's not you or, you yeah. know, like whatever. And I, I, I don't like that. I feel like it, it, in a way it boxes God in. I think that you can look at God in the past in that way and just be like, yes, he, he is sovereign over all things. He does, you know, like he, he does love us and he does all these things for the good of those who love him. But I think looking forward, you have to somehow pull yourself away from that. You have to see that God, you know, like he can be the author of the story, but he can also be in the story as Jesus, or he can watch the story as the director, you know, like he doesn't have to just, it doesn't have to just be this, this script that he's throwing down, you know, like where it's like, this is who's saved and who's not, you know? I don't think that's how God is. In terms of Christ-likeness, how would you describe that today? What does it mean to be Christ-like? I think that to be Christ-like is to die to yourself. I think that it is 
I mean, in, in reality, like if you if you're acting Christ-like and you're a human, you have to just be able to say you're sorry to people, and you have to be able to to love people despite the fact that you know most of the world finds them unlovable. I think m- mostly just loving people, like choosing love first before you're worried about what people are doing if it's sinful or if it's hurting people that you're loving people first. And this is where I'm kind of picking up on some of that softening from your earlier, not necessarily your earlier view, but kind of just your earlier way of going about it, where you've described yourself as quite a bit more sort of strident maybe, and, and sort of out there in your critiques and in your, I don't know, would you call it judging others or would that be too strong of a term? Yeah, I think it's really easy as a young Christian to just pick pick up on, okay, it's bad to drink, or it's it's bad to swear. And I think the longer you go, you're like, well, sometimes it's okay to drink for some people. And sometimes swearing is like the best way to get people's attention, you know, like, or to convey the seriousness of what you're saying. Sometimes it's the most loving thing to do, you know? And I think that those kind of things have come for me with, with age. What do you practice on any kind of regular basis in order to become more Christ-like? Man, I don't know. I, like, I, I don't know if there's any practice. I'm not very disciplined. I think it's more just that, you know, like my inner monologue is always talking about these things whether or not something is is good or if it's if it's the most loving thing that I can do do you think that there are practices that you ought to take up if you if you could discipline yourself to do them i also don't know about that because i've tried to be super disciplined you know where i set you know like i'm very regimented i'm going to wake up at this time i'm going to make my bed i'm going to pray for 2 hours i'm going to read my bible for this long maybe the problem um, is that you started with 2 hours <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe start with like so 7 minutes wasn't, let's see go from there i know but like for me when i do things like that when i'm really regimented about things it doesn't work I know that for some people it does. It wasn't that I it just got to be too much. It's just that it wasn't working. It wasn't it it wasn't bringing me closer to God. It was making it more about that thing than it was about God. It was maybe pulling me away, and so then I just would stop doing it. You know, yeah. and I and I get it. For some people, that's that's the thing. You need a lot of discipline. To me, if if you just do what you're supposed to do, it will it will be okay. You know, if if you cut corners, then it's not going to work out. I guess that's where I'm disciplined is just that I, I try not to cut corners on things. I have a bunch of questions here from uh, people who are on my Patreon campaign and who support okay. the podcast, and uh, there's some really great ones here. Here's the first. Is your current work, uh, by which I think uh, they meant the nursing, in any way a reaction to what you experienced in the Christian music scene? Man. That's a good question. Is it a huh? reaction to that? <laughs> it was, a, like, financially, yes. Yeah, but not culturally? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I, I guess in a way. No, I mean, it's just an extension of, of my Christianity, which I feel like anyone's vocation should yeah. be. What, whatever you're doing, you should be doing that to the like you're doing it for God. It, it makes it feel so much better. It, not just because you're just like, oh, I read this Bible verse about this, but like if you are out picking up trash and you're a prisoner on the side of the road and you're like, you know what, God, this is where you put me and I'm going to do the best I can and this is how I'm going to worship you, you're going to have a good day. How does the gospel or your faith help you work in an environment where so many of your patients end up dying or their minds are being eaten away by dementia? Man, that is a good question. So I had to come to terms with this. I have a friend who is a hospice nurse. And when I first became a nurse, I would always just go to this guy and be like, I don't, I don't get this. I don't understand how you do this. You're you're basically like uh, like the Grim Reaper. You just go and – but he loved it, and I couldn't understand it um, until maybe like about five years ago. And I, I kind of just had to come to peace with the fact that like I, I work in a nursing home, and there's no chance that the people in there are going to make it. You know, they're – Right. This right. is it. You know, they, they're – so we have like a skilled nursing side where people get better, they get rehab, and then they go home. But they're going to come back, and one day they're going to die. They're going to, and it's pretty quick, you know. Like it's not going to be ten years from now. It's going to be like in the next five years, this person is going to is going to die. So I just had to accept that, and this is pretty morose, but it it really brought out the joy in that, you know, that like. I don't think death is the end for for anyone, and I and I do think that God loves everyone, all these people, and so for me, my job is just to share that love, to to love them as much as possible, to make sure that they're taken care of as as well as possible, and that if this is their last day, that it's going to be a good one. I love that. As far as dementia, it's it is really hard to see somebody going from dementia. But I think it's most hard for family members. When you're in healthcare, you usually get there and that person's already kind of kooky and that's how you know them. You know, like you're like, oh, this person has right. Alzheimer's. That's all you know of that person. You never saw them be a librarian or, you know, like an amazing, you know, softball player or a cool dad you never saw that of that person you just get this picture of this person that is like kind of funny and they forget things and they wander around and and so your job is just to make that person not you know not suffer and i don't think that's as hard as being the family member of that yeah. person the only time it's it's really difficult is that i think um with dementia you end up being in some spot in time where you just kind of get stuck. And for some people, it's a bad time, like where they're afraid or something bad happened to them. And that's difficult. This is my follow-up question to the initial question. How do you, how do you sync that up with, uh, I don't know, Christ likeness or God's love or, or any of that stuff? Um, 
That's one of those things that I have such a hard time with of like, why that kind of like high level human only type suffering? I think that it is like this very arrogant human thing where we think that these 90 years that we have are like the most important thing. Mm. (laughs) We're like, there shouldn't be suffering. And I can only speak from my own suffering, but all, all of my suffering combined, I would not take back. I feel that it has made me a better person and that it has made me able to, to be like a better dad or a better husband or a better songwriter or, you know, a better nurse. And I don't, I don't want to be somebody else. I don't want to take that away. I just feel like if we just accepted that, like our time on earth is going to be suffering that is peppered with, with goodness. And we somehow can, can be better and we can take the suffering of other people on ourselves it will make us happy. That leads into a, another question that someone asked, which is, um, <laughs> do you have any stories or glimpses of afterlife stuff with this work? And how do you think about the hereafter now? I don't. Um, it's funny because everybody, everybody, especially in nursing homes, they've got ghost stories. They'll be like, well, you don't know about the little boy that runs around up here <laughs> or, you know, like, that everybody has it. And I, and I don't have any of those. Sometimes just working in a nursing home, you see, you see the ghosts of, of people anyway, you know, like you're just working with the ghosts of what these people were. Right. Um, but, I, but nothing like that. Uh, here's another one. These days, are you more motivated by the preaching or spreading of the gospel, basically evangelism? Or are you more motivated by the call to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, et cetera? Definitely the second one. Why? Um, I I feel like the church right now could end, like we could we could do away with all the all the problems. We have enough money to end hunger. We have enough people in the church, you know, like to to build homes for everybody. If we really think abortion is a sin, like we have the ability to just say, look, if you get pregnant and you don't want your baby, let us take care of you. And then we'll take your baby and make sure your baby has a home. If, I mean, we can do that (laughs) and we don't. And I, I just feel like when you look at the church in Acts, like the church in early Rome, they People came to that not because they were just like, oh, well, cool. These guys only have one God and I don't have to pray to these 52 other people. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't think that was it. You know, they they the church, they were doing something that was so counter to, to what the Romans were doing and what the Greeks had been doing, which was just like serving themselves. And, and you know, like the early church. They had the first orphanages because Romans would often, if they had a baby they didn't want, they would just leave them out and hope the gods would take them. And Christians would would take those babies and raise them and they would feed people and they would 
you know, they would take care of the lepers and the, and the sick. And, and that is why the church is because it started with that, just people serving and people loving spreading the gospel. And, and I think if we did that again, if we stopped saying, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong, don't do this, come to this building, this is where you can learn about God. If we just got away from that, I think it would be such a different world. Do you think of salvation any different today than you did 20 years ago? The only thing, I don't believe it. I just hope it. I know, you know, like I, I, I'm, I still believe there are very specific things that are required for salvation that like, um, that God is, you know, immutable and perfect. And he said that like, there has to be sacrifice for your, for your sins. If you know, and, and, and that you have to believe that Jesus is your sacrifice to be saved. I guess this is my hope is that it's not just while we draw breath. You know, I think that, I guess my hope is that because I'm, I feel like I'm a relatively compassionate person and I love people and I love things. I feel like if I'm made this way by God, that he must be more so and that his mercy would extend beyond life. You know, that I think this is very uni- universal, you know, <laughs> that's, you're, I think you're that's very friendly I'm, territory I'm for that kind of view here. I'm very universalist. Yeah, a, my wife and I are both universalists. So no judgment. Okay. Here. I guess it's just my hope that there is some point where you just, you know, like you, you die and your soul goes before Christ and you see everything, you know, like you see the truth and, and you are able to choose him still. Yeah. I mean, C.S. Lewis basically had that view. So I don't think you need to feel bad about it. So that was all the patron questions. This is my last question for you today. If someone is listening and they maybe have never really considered Christ-likeness as really like that central of an issue, perhaps they weren't taught uh, in their church context to value, um, sort of the the regular daily habitual following of Christ, or if uh, it's the kind of thing that is really up in the air for them, and they're not really sure who Jesus was and what they can trust and what they can't trust, and so this is a topic that is not really congealed for them in any meaningful way, what would you say to someone in either of those positions as they sort of think through uh, this topic? I I would say keep those questions and then read through the Gospels, and then read the book of Acts and read Romans, and see see what you think. Like, how, how did Jesus act? How did he treat people? How did he treat women? How did he treat, like, religious people? How did he treat um, the lost? How did he treat his enemies? Just see how Jesus treated people. See how that was.
I'd also like to add, as a resource to the end of this conversation, a book called The Imitation of Christ, which I believe is the second most widely read Christian book of all time after the Bible. Yes, even more than The Purpose Driven Life or Your Best Life Now. It was written in the 15th century by a monk, written for new monks as they started that journey. But that stark difference between that setting and our own modern setting is, I think, one of the reasons that so many people have found that book so helpful. It's public domain, so you can find it online for free all over the place, and I'm sure on audiobook. But also, I'm including a link to an edition and a translation that I personally like, and it's like four bucks used online. A big thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing today's conversation. I've also got a link to fiveironfrenzy.com and, you know, the normal stuff that I say at the end here, for instance, a reminder about the Patreon, two bonus episodes, Facebook discussion group, write questions for future guests, help me with that prep, patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. These episodes are meant to be resources, share them with people, even people with whom you disagree, maybe especially people with whom you disagree. I hope that they are fair enough that they can be a bridge for conversation. And I want to hear how those go. And I also want to hear what you'd like me to cover on the show. So email me, you have permission podcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next week. 